Welcome to the wonderful world of wine, exploring all things wine with you. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, and we will be talking about trends and current topics in the wine world. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hey, Mark, how are you this week? Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm well, thank you. So, hey, what was the most interesting question that you heard from customers regarding wine this week? Yeah, that's a good question. The thing that I get a lot from customers coming to the store is just recommend a good wine. And it, it puts a lot of pressure on me, Kim, because <laughs> what I think is good and what I hope they think is good. So I just kind of go to my go-tos that are hot that week or what I think are tasting good that week. Yeah, it is hard to answer the what's a good wine question because a good wine for you might be a different good wine for me and also the context. How are you going to be consuming this? Is it going to be with a meal? Is it not? Is it for party? Is it for with friends? So yeah, that word good is is kind of a loaded term when it comes to picking out a bottle of wine, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. How about you? <laughs> Any Anything exciting questions you came um, up this week? So I had, I had a very nice wine tasting with a bunch of ladies and one of the questions that I got was about the subjective nature of wine tasting. So we were swirling and sniffing and tasting and one woman raised her hand and she's like well isn't this all just depending on what you like and what you smell and isn't this really subjective and I'm like yes it absolutely is which is why I'm not telling you what you should be smelling in your glass or or what you should think about this particular wine you know make up your own mind so I thought that was that was the question that sort of stuck in my mind this week so did, did you swirl and spill like I did when we did an event <laughs> um I don't think I I don't think I spilled too much but I I did did sort of swirl the uh, the bubbles out of the Prosecco that I had in my glass, unfortunately. So the first topic that we wanted to talk about today is about the three-tiered system, which is the system that the U.S. government set up after prohibition for the sale and distribution of alcohol. And it's kind of like dealing with 50 little countries when you deal with alcohol in the U.S. because each state has its own set of rules and regulations, and that can make it super confusing. Yes, the idea <laughs> of this was in a way it was a good idea it was to control alcohol after prohibition but many feel that it limits consumers in buying options so let's talk about in Massachusetts how it's structured um, well first off the states can either control it or they can allow uh, individuals to control the sale so in Massachusetts we have three tier we have the winery that sells to a distributor that sells to me who sells to the consumer so what are your thoughts on when you hear three tier system so first of all it's an interesting concept for consumers to wrap their brains around. And I think that a lot of people don't understand how it is structured. So it can be frustrating, I think, for consumers because especially if you are, you're on the internet and you are looking up a particular wine or you had something at a restaurant and you really like it and you're trying to then purchase another bottle of it. Um, if you go online and you search for it, you may come up with the name of the distributor who distributes it in the state of Massachusetts. But as the consumer, you can't buy directly through them. You have to go through a store. So it adds, I think, a level of complexity to the consumer. And it's not necessarily the most consumer-friendly way of setting up the, the sales system in the state. So on the one hand, I think,
think that it's good for being able to get wines into the state, but it's not necessarily consumer friendly. Yeah, there's over over 9,000 wineries now in the, in the United States and making about 120, I think, thousand different wines each year. So not every distributor in Massachusetts carries all these wines. So if you, like you're saying, Kim, if you see a, a wine on a wine list and you like it and there's no distributor that's bringing it into the state, you cannot buy it in a store. And that's frustrating for people, I think. But it also, it gives a lot of power to those distributors because they are the ones who say yay or nay to carrying a particular brand. And if they decide to pass on a really good wine for whatever reason, maybe it's a really small winery and maybe there just isn't the manpower behind that winery to get it sold. If they pass on it and the next distributor passes on it and the next distributor passes on it, then it's really hard for that winery to gain traction in a particular state. And Massachusetts is a state that sells a lot of wine. I, I don't remember what the number is. I think we might be like the seventh or eighth biggest market in the U.S. So yeah, we sell a lot of wine here in Massachusetts. Yeah, it's up there. And, and this was a blog, Reverse Wine Snob. was, And there are many blogs where people are very consumer friendly saying this has to go away. Consumers need, we should be able to buy it anywhere we want, anything we want. And when you think about the power that the distributor has, who I buy from, if you bring a product to them, Kim, if you were a winery, you brought that product to the distributor and said, we want you to sell this. They look at that and they are very powerful with the big guys who are producing wine. So they need a lot of space and a lot of marketing to support them. So if you were only making 5,000 cases, your portion in that warehouse would be lost. Mm -hmm. So it's not a value to them to bring it in. Right. And I've been on this side of the business. I I worked for a distributor for, for three and a half or so years. And it is interesting to see where the emphasis is placed and the, the dollars behind certain brands and the things that you're expected to go out and sell. And then sometimes that little guy does get lost and it's not necessarily fair to that winery. And I also don't necessarily think that it's fair to the consumer themselves because there might be these hidden gems out there that we really want to get in front of people, but it's a little bit harder to. It, you brought up these different wine blogs that are trying to be consumer focused and consumer friendly. And a lot of the time, the pushback that you see against that and against being pro-consumer is sort of these scare tactics of like, oh, you know, if we had more of an open market for wine, then there would be more alcohol abuse and there would be more drunk driving and all of these sort of scary things that additional access to alcohol is put out there. So you kind of have to look at both sides of it. It's like, all right, so what would be the the problem about getting rid of the three-tiered system versus what are the benefits of having it? I was thinking about the control states like New Hampshire. Now, New Hampshire deals directly with the wineries. I'm thinking that a smaller producer has less of a chance in a state-controlled system than a three-tier system. Well, it almost seems like for the state ones, it's like you have one distributor, right? It's not like you have the, is it 30 or 40 or 50 distributors that are in the state of Massachusetts? So at least you have a shot in Massachusetts with one of the distributors, whereas in New Hampshire, they have to stock your product in one big warehouse and distribute it to many stores, so it'd be much harder. So I would think these people should start looking at the control states system needs to go away Hmm. to give them more of a chance. That's interesting. But I'm very biased as a a store owner. (laughs) Right, so you've you've got your your foot in in that other tier. You know, we're talking about the wineries and we're talking about the consumers and we're talking about the distributors and you're, you're that other tier of it. Yeah, that's why we talk a lot about different wines and exploring wines because we love to find the small guys who get into the system, that it's a great product that people should know about that's not getting lost in the sea of the mass marketed wines. And, and that's what's happening.
happening is these distributors are uh, big marketing dollars are promoting to sell all those pallets that are in their warehouse. So, and it's this is a, a different topic. I feel like altogether than the idea of direct shipping. So then there's this idea that maybe you can buy wine directly from a winery in California and have it shipped to you. And that I think is helpful to you if there is in fact one of those wines that is not distributed in the state and you want to buy it. But otherwise, yeah, like like you said, we we really want to find out those those little ones and those really good quality things that maybe the the public doesn't really have much awareness of because they're good quality but they're a little bit smaller and they're not these big brands. Yeah, the shipping part was a whole different consumer movement that felt you were, you should be able to get a wine shipped from anywhere and that that has gone away. So as long as the state gets their money from the winery to ship it in, there's there's no problem with that. So the consumers really won on that point. Um, but I think the distributors fought that hard to, to not lose that business. I agree. I agree. But what I, what I think the takeaway here is for consumers to know is that there are these different levels and that you can't go directly to a distributor to, to do your buying. You still need to have that relationship with a store or a restaurant in order for you to be able to purchase those bottles that you want to have. You've been listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lindsay, exploring all things wine with you. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. And if you'd like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Our next topic is from businessinsider.com, and we're going to discuss why hangovers get worse with age. Kim, can you relate to this? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. You know, I, I probably get one or two pretty good ones a year. But for someone who honestly drinks alcohol for a living, it's one of those things that you just kind of have to deal with. But I don't necessarily know if mine have gotten worse with age or if I just know how to drink a little bit smarter these days. And so therefore don't get as many. Yeah, it is a learning experience, right? <laughs> I see. But most agree that there is no scientific evidence of why this or happens. But there's probably two reasons that it can happen. So the first off I'd like to talk about is, are there more additives in wine that would cause these hangovers than in the past. And this is something that we talk about a lot. A lot of people assume that maybe it's the sulfites in the wine that are causing your hangovers or there's something else chemically in those bottles that is resulting in you feeling pretty crummy the next day. Whether it's pesticides on the grapes, whether it's additives in the winery. Um, and, and it's really hard for consumers to know just by looking at a wine bottle or looking up information on the internet what, what is going on with their bottle of wine, what's going into that beverage. Yeah, and if you've listened to us in the past, we've always stressed this, that the only thing on the label they tell you, they have to tell you about for additives is sulfite. So all the other stuff they're putting in there, and there's pages and pages of additives that could be hurting you the next day. And one of the big things we always discuss, Kim, is the alcohol. So say you're used to drinking a, a, a wine that is 12% alcohol. The next day you drink one that's 13 or 14% alcohol and you have a hangover, chances are it's the alcohol. Yeah, I find that that's what gets me is more my alcohol absorption or how much alcohol I've actually put in my system that impacts me the next day. And a lot of it, I think, has to do with how much food you're eating, how much water you're drinking. And again, that that sort of sneaky alcohol content on that bottle. One thing that I think isn't talked about all that often is the interaction of alcohol and sugar in a beverage. Because I have found personally that if I'm drinking a high alcohol wine that also has a 
lot of sugar or sweetness left in the wine, that will impact me quite negatively the next day. So I think that's also something to think about when you are when you are drinking and not just wine, you know, think of like big fruity cocktails that maybe have a fair amount of sugar and also like a lot of vodka. I think that that can really come back to haunt you the next day too. Well, that's interesting because sugar would probably be not the residual sugar that's left though. It's probably some sort of additive of sweetness. Quite possibly. That's hurting you. Mm-hmm. So, so if you had a wine and you had the same percentage of alcohol each time, but you got hurt by one wine the next day, would you assume that it is an additive or something in the wine that's hurting you? I don't know that I've I've ever thought of it that way. I don't, I don't think I have. I think for me, so like for an example for me, I have a hard time with Malbec. I don't know why, but I've gotten more hangovers over drinking Malbec than I, from for any other thing. And I've always been assuming that it is either something particular about that grape variety or that there's a higher alcohol level in that particular wine that I'm drinking. Um, I don't think that it's that I'm drinking more of it than I would any other wine. But now that you're mentioning it, it may be. Maybe there's something in the production of that particular style of wine that is hitting me the wrong way. Yeah, that, that's Usually Argentina is not known to be using a lot of additives. So that's interesting. Yeah, so I don't know. So what about the, the other reason they were saying you're failing these hangovers worse with age is your body as you get older just cannot consume alcohol the right. same way. And there, there's always a, the conversation about how does your body process alcohol and the makeup of your body and body composition. And, and this comes into play often when we talk about how much can women drink versus how much can men drink because women generally have higher fat levels in their body just because that's the way that our bodies are, are made because we have to make babies and <laughs> that requires a lot of fat. And men generally have more muscle mass than women do. Muscle helps you process and absorb alcohol better than fat does. And women tend to be smaller than men overall, not every individual case, but larger people tend to have a better time processing alcohol than smaller people do. So as we age, uh, our bodies change and we generally tend to have less muscle and more fat. And so that means that we can't process alcohol as much or as well when we're older than versus when we're younger. Yeah, the muscle was one thing. And they also talked about liver enzymes. I thought this was interesting. That you cannot clear out the alcohol as well when you get older because there are fewer enzymes mm-hmm. as you get older. So that was really interesting. So you would talk to him about before you drink some wine or alcohol to have some water. Don't yeah. you think it's interesting we're always told when we do taste things to not really cleanse your palate or drink a lot of water because it affects the tasting? Yeah, we but are told then that. then again, you need it to hydrate, yeah. right? So, I don't listen to the don't drink water people. No, I, I definitely stay hydrated. I had an old boss who used to say that you have to drink the equivalent of water of whatever alcoholic beverage that you are consuming just to stay on top of the dehydration that alcohol will bring. And I really have found that if you drink enough water, you kind of can keep those hangovers at bay. So it's I find that it's really, really important to stay hydrated and also to make sure that you have food in your stomach when you are drinking because high protein food, something with fat, something with carbohydrates are definitely going to help you process the alcohol better. So especially if you are a little bit older, and maybe your liver enzymes aren't necessarily keeping up like they did when you were 25, having food in your stomach is going to help. You always say that about the proteins. I find it funny that the more I hear about people intake of proteins is when they're hungover and they'll say, oh, go go grab a hamburger oh. <laughs> or something, right? But and I no say one, do it before. Yeah, you say do it before. So I, I think it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. 
Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find us online at franklinliquors.com and vinitaswineworks.com. So, hey, Mark, how do you define quality in a wine, you personally? Yeah, we fight about this a lot. We do, I know. To me, it's all about something that's tasting well, that's at a good price point, that I feel has a story behind it that's very low production. So it's a lot, I guess. Yeah, a that lot. is a lot. So does what? the flavor of the wine come into play for you? Oh, yeah, it has to It has to taste well i mean what do you what do you think when you define it i don't necessarily put that whole like backstory of it into it that you like that the wine has a story and that there's person attached to it and that almost like the wine has a personality for me it's more about the quality of the wine itself and balance like i'm always assessing balance in a wine and for me balance means that it doesn't have what i like to call elbows the alcohol isn't too high or the acid isn't too high or the tannins aren't too overwhelming I like to make sure that all those things are working together and then it has good flavors, but also that it's appropriate for the type of wine that it's supposed to be. So I don't want a big, heavy, crazy extracted Pinot Noir because that's not what Pinot Noir is all about. You know, it should be light and elegant and flavors that are subtle and things like that. So that's that's part of my definition of quality. I like the balance thing. I think the difference with us is I need the story or to know something behind it to sell it to you. Right. So, and then if I tell you it's balanced and I have a little bit more background too, I think it's better for sales. But Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you about finding something that's balanced. I just hope you look at the stories behind them to find out who you're giving your money to. Oh, Todd. I totally agree that because I try to support those smaller producers that are taking more of an interest in what they're putting in the bottle and then it's not a mass produced commercial product. But for me too, the things that I try to get across to my clients is the context that they will be drinking the wine in or how does that wine work for them in the place that they are drinking it. So I kind of feel like you need to look uh, look for how is the wine working for you? Do you want a big red because it has to fit in with the big dinner that you're having or that's what the other people that you are drinking it with like or is it going to serve some other purpose? Is is this the perfect wine to be drinking out by the campfire or on a date night or some other place that you're going to have, have a wine? You know, is it going to go better with tacos versus is it going to go better with filet mignon? So I try to work that into it as well so that it's not in a vacuum. I feel like different wines are good in different places. So why are we talking about quality? quality of wine, we saw a blog by Jamie Good, and he was talking about his thoughts on wine quality and how there are factors that can change your mind on what you think is good quality. Uh, It was very interesting. One of the things was how you were serving a wine. So say you like a rosé. Kim, I know you're a big rosé fan. It's a hot day. You're drinking a rosé, but you're drinking it warm. Then you would think the quality of the wine is bad. Mm -hmm. But if you drink it at the proper temperature and it's cold, then and the quality goes up. Right. So you can't necessarily say the quality of that wine is bad, but the temperature affects that quality. So And I think this comes back to context. If you are if you're drinking it in a place that it might not necessarily work so well for you or or maybe with food that isn't working so great with the wine, then your perception of the quality of the wine is going to go down. Yeah, food was a big one. I they used the same example in this article that if you pair a wine with the wrong food, then you might think the wine is horrible quality, but it's just because it 
it didn't match or the food might have overpowered it, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad wine or a bad quality wine. Right. And I loved this concept that he brought up of is the wine quality a reflection of what the wine is supposed to be? And I think this kind of comes back to my comment about Pinot Noir. Some people just really love big, powerful reds. And so when they are shown a Pinot Noir, they might think that it's too light or they might use terms like, oh, it's watery or it's thin. That doesn't mean that it's a bad wine. It just means it's not a good Cabernet because it's not a Cabernet. It's a Pinot Noir. Different things are different for different people. It's like looking at athletes. You know, you could have a world-class tennis player and a world-class football player and they're built very differently because they play different sports. And that's how I like to think about different wines. So you could have a big, powerful Chardonnay uh, versus a very light Muscadet. They might be very different from each other, but they are still good quality for what they are supposed to be. Now I see when you asked me the question in the beginning of this, that that's a perfect example of how we differ in what we think is good quality, but uh, consumers are the same way. So there are so many factors. I think one of the big things I hear a lot, and you talk about location, a lot of people will say, um, you know, I'm on vacation and the wine, the quality of the wine was perfect. And, and a lot of that is the environment that you're in when you're having the wine that can affect that as well. I get this comment so many times from people and it's like, oh, I was on vacation in Italy and I had this wine and it was wonderful. And so I bought a case and we brought it home and it just wasn't good anymore at home. And people think that there's either, they were either duped and that they were sold, you know, crummy wine in replace, in place of the wine that they thought they were buying or that something happened to it in transit. And a lot of the times I have to tell them again, it was, it's that context thing. It's like, you're relaxed, you're on vacation. That might be why the wine tasted so good. Your mindset was different. And so then therefore how you perceived the wine was also different. There was some talk within this article about winemaker interactions with the wine affecting the quality. What was your take on that? Oh, I think that totally is. It's not just what the grapes are as they come in from the vineyard. You know, there's a lot of manipulation that the winemaker does to the wine. And certainly I think that the the hand of man has a, has a big impact on the quality of the wine, not just the style, but the end result and how good that wine can be. So when you're looking at a label or a wine product and you see a specific winemaker listed, do you associate that with quality? Um, only to the extent that if they know enough about who the winemaker is and they're putting it on the bottle, then generally it is one of those more kind of carefully made wines. But sometimes it's more of a marketing ploy. So it, that doesn't necessarily carry as much weight for me as as some other things. Yeah, I do, I do see that lately a lot as a marketing thing. They'll say, oh, so-and-so consults with this wine or this winemaker talks to this guy what to do with this wine. And I don't feel to me that's a real selling point of the wine. I think it's more of an indication of maybe what the style is than it is about the quality of it. So there are a lot of winemaking consultants that kind of travel the world and then bring with them a particular style of winemaking. So then wherever they go, the winemakers will then make wines to, I don't want to say to appeal to that particular person, but they're following that person's, you know, the person's opinions, that person's rules for winemaking. And so then you end up with a little bit more of a similar style following this uh, this traveling winemaker around. So that's more where I would look for the impact of that person and not necessarily on the quality. What about the importer? Like I know a lot of times you talk about this, Kim, when you're looking at a imported wine and you, you find something you like, you check out who's importing it, yeah. you kind of follow them. Would this you is, this is the thing for me. Yeah. So, and I think, I don't think that this is necessarily an easy thing for just the casual wine drinker to do because I've tasted hundreds and probably thousands of wines in my life. And so I can therefore 
put my tasting memory and the things that I like with a particular importer. And I just, I know because I've tasted so many things that yes, I tend to gravitate towards the things of say importer X or importer Y. And I've tasted lots and lots of things that that person has brought in. And I have just either, I like the style of wine that they bring in, or there's something about, and I think it's back to this balance thing. There's something about the quality of those wines that I find particularly appealing. And so then I will search out those wines from that particular importer. But I think this is a really hard thing to do if you don't have an awful lot of exposure to different wines that are out there. Yeah, I think that's a, a great example of how you determine quality in, in your wines. One of the things, usually like an importer, they may have the same staff tasting those wines all the time. Same way with when you see a review, if you follow a certain magazine or a certain reviewer of wine and you agree with what they think is a good wine, then you follow them and you tend to agree with that. Yeah, I think the publication point is very apropos. And I think that that actually would make more sense for consumers than following a particular importer because it is easier for you to get your hands on a wine magazine and to read what they think about particular wines and maybe a little bit about their tasting notes and a little bit about their scoring. And if you can find a few of those wines in a wine store and you try them and you like them, I think that's a much easier way for the consumer to gauge, all right, yeah, this might be where my palate is at versus I'm trying to go a different route. But I, I don't think that it can be overlooked talking to your local retailer. So someone like you and finding a store that maybe there are a lot of things on that shelf that you wouldn't ordinarily pick up, but that you have found over time that you like. So that wine buyer or that particular consultant might also have a similar palette to yours. So I think that that can be a very valuable thing for a consumer as well. I don't think they mentioned anything about cost in this, about quality, did no, they? No, I don't think so. And so it's almost the first thing that you brought up too is the quality price ratio. How much is a bottle of wine that's $10 versus a bottle of wine that's $50? And how do you gauge quality between the two of those? Yeah, because we talked a lot in the past of what price point you would set to say, okay, it must be good quality if it's above this price point. So to find a, a value priced bottle that tastes like a higher end bottle is is the always the goal for me. Mm-hmm. So you don't relate this to, to a price point, would you um, feel? I, I think a little bit less. I think, again, you know, like you just said, if you find that $9 bottle of wine that you feel has good quality to it, then yeah, that's something that I think is a standout. But I feel like, all right, if there's an $8 bottle of wine that's just kind of meh versus a $15 wine that gives me a wow, then I'm certainly going to say that, all right, the quality is so much better for that $15 bottle. So do you think our listeners go into a store and they see a bottle that's $10, they automatically are thinking it's not good quality? No, I don't think so. I think people are are looking for value and I think people are looking for things that are going to taste good. And and you do need to weigh the price. Is a $20 bottle have the expectation of being twice as good as a $10 bottle? I don't think so. So I think everybody is different and you know they're weighing their threshold of how much do I want to pay versus how much enjoyment do I think I'm going to get out of this bottle. How about this, Kim? When you're tasting, someone hands you a wine, says, you know, Kim, what do you think about this? Do you ask price first? 
or after? No, I ask after. after. I'll assess the wine first. I'm going to try to come up with an idea of what do I think about this wine? And it just kind of goes against what I said before, because now I am taking it out of context, which is a hard thing about doing wine tastings. Yeah. You're in a room with literally hundreds of different wines that you're trying to taste and you're trying to assess and, and you are sort of tasting them in a vacuum. It's like th- there's there's no meatballs to go with that Chianti. Hopefully they're all the right temperature, but I generally don't ask about price first. I want to I want to have my kind of honest opinion of how is this wine presenting itself as far as what does it taste like? What does it smell like? Back to that balance thing. And, and, and then I'll get information about how much does it cost? So if you find a wine that you think is tasting great, it's perfectly balanced. And then they say to you, it's a $50 bottle. Would oh. you would you do you automatically say, yeah, I figured that? Or do you say, you know, if they said it was a $10 bottle, would you say, wow, I, great, I great. think I would do both of those things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So both ways. So it, if it, it's like really a standout and they say, oh, yeah, you know, it's $50. I'm like, yeah, OK, that's kind of what I was expecting for this. But then if they were to say, you know, it's it's twelve ninety nine, like, whoa, wow, that's that's a steal. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, a lot of people base everything on the price points. And I don't feel that's a good assessment thing for quality. Well, it's interesting because there has been some research that if someone knows how much a wine costs beforehand, they will generally give it a higher score. There's almost like this anticipation in there that because somebody is charging more money for the wine, it automatically has to be better quality. And it's those little things that that really do impact people. And the the labels on the bottle do the same thing. You know, people think that it's going to be a better quality wine if more marketing thought has gone into what the bottle should look like and what the label is going to look like. So there are all these all these little things that do impact people's idea of what makes a quality wine. It's funny you said that about the labels because I just had this happen recently. I was tasting a wine and just by the looking at the package, I was thinking it was in a certain price point, like 10 to 15 max. And it ended up being a $40 bottle. And I could not, I mean, the wine was good, but I could not, based on the packaging, think the quality was worth $40. Right. And, you know, people do buy with their eyes. You know, consumers are very, very in tune with what something looks like, whether it's packaging or whether it's what your vegetables look like on the on the grocery store shelf. And I, I myself have done the same thing. It's like, I'll taste a wine and be like, yeah, you know, I like the wine, but there's no way that I'm selling this bottle because I really hate the packaging. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. And if you want to find out more about what we do and links to these articles, please visit us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine.